Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe at theconsumervc.substack.com, where episodes, my own takes, and upcoming events will be delivered straight to your inbox. If you could also leave a review on the Apple Podcast app of the show, that would also be terrific. My guest today is Sarah Deshpande, partner at Maven Ventures. Maven Ventures is a consumer-focused microfund that focuses on investing in seed stage companies. Some of their investments include Zoom, WildType, AngelList, and Nugs. What I most enjoyed about this conversation was looking at the types of businesses that are being built on top of Zoom and the opportunities in telehealth, which Sarah's very deep on. Without further ado, here's Sarah. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. I'm excited to be here. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I'd love to talk, like go back maybe early in your career or maybe even before that. I know I know you started off in, you know, healthcare consulting at Deloitte. I'd love to just to know what was your attraction to innovation, venture capital, and and startups. Yeah, definitely. I'll share a little bit kind of how I landed in this seat at Maven and um, my passion for startups and entrepreneurship that brought me here. Um, I joined Deloitte in their healthcare strategy practice right out of business school. I did my MBA at Stanford and what really brought me to the GSB was this idea of invest, you know, investing kind of my own time and energy in the intersection of business and massive positive social change. And that's what took me to the GSB. That's why I wanted to um, to go to business school there. And that's what kind of led me into to healthcare, sort of in this idea of like seeking for like, where was I going to find this intersection, like this great intersection of business and social change. And so spent several years in healthcare strategy at Deloitte, um, kind of seeing that, you know, firsthand. And at the time I was there, uh, we were, you know, it was right around the passing of the Affordable Care Act. I left, I left Deloitte in, in 2012. So, you know, now it's been almost, um, you know, almost 10 years since I was there. And at the time, the Affordable Care Act was rolling out. And I love this idea of like healthcare is changing for the consumer and consumers are going to be in the front seat with their own healthcare. But when you're kind of within the system, started to realize that that change for consumers was actually many, many years out and it was coming, but it was, you're going to take so long for our healthcare system to, to sort of catch up. Um, and I wanted to be really kind of more at the forefront of like what was happening, what was what were the changes happening in consumers' lives today. And I also kind of had found this, this calling and untapped this interest in, you know, entrepreneurship and seeing that, that while I think there is so much massive opportunity in healthcare, I can see that's an area I invested now. I really believe that the biggest opportunity that our generation has to impact, you know, massive positive social change is through entrepreneurship. And so that's really what I kind of discovered this idea of, of can you use entrepreneurship as this catalyst for using business for kind of a force for good. So while I was at, at Deloitte, kind of loved the experience that I had there, but, but knew that I'd find a kind of more connection at the kind of earlier stage, messier, um, kind of true innovation, early stage startup. That's helpful. That's really great. I, I'd love to know when you realize, okay, entrepreneurship is maybe what you maybe seek in terms of really making social or, or real change, right? How did you navigate, um, and I guess land in terms of getting to Maven and I guess navigate in terms of maybe why you wanted, why you thought maybe the investor seat was the right, was the right fit for you. Once I realized I was ready to, to leave uh, Deloitte and leave management consulting, I felt like I had to do a big career 180. I was never going to get to where I wanted to go by taking kind of small incremental steps and kind of small incremental changes. And so I said, I'm going to go the total opposite direction. And I decided to kind of uproot myself and move to New Orleans, um, a place where I'd spent, you know, several years being engaged in their entrepreneurial ecosystem and really saw that at the time, you know, it was just a few years 
years after Hurricane Katrina, and this idea of um, kind of being a lab for entrepreneurship, and could New Orleans be the place, if it could happen in New Orleans, it could happen anywhere, could you work with early stage businesses there, and that could be um, a place to have very deep-rooted, um, you know, great companies that then we're going to go on to help the, the city, you know, be a really, a really strong city for business and for people who wanted to live there, so um, I've been working with an organization called the Idea Village, really as a volunteer for several years at that point, um, and decided to kind of take a big, you know, hard turn in my career, moved to New Orleans, uh, started working at the Idea Village full time. And my job while I was there uh, was to know every early stage startup in New Orleans. And if a company wanted to work with the Idea Village, I was sort of the front door for companies that wanted to come in and engage with the Idea Village. So that was really where I started spending, you know, my career working with hundreds of startups um, and sort of this idea of like high volume evaluation of, of early stage companies and figuring out how to gather the resources that they needed to be successful. So that was sort of my first foray into kind of the investor seat. Um, and I think from that I saw, um, you know, first of all, there's, you know, you could build a great skill set of, of evaluating and getting to see many, many companies. And if you can find and partner with the right ones, you can kind of find the resources that they need before they need them. Um, you know, that's really what helps a portfolio to be successful. So I spent a few years living in New Orleans, helping to build out the entrepreneurial programming at the Idea Village. And when I knew I wanted to do that for the rest of my career, ended up relocating back to the Bay Area to kind of be at the center of Silicon Valley where, um, you know, where, where everything was, was happening. And, and pretty soon after I returned to the Bay Area, met my partner, Jim, who had started Maven. And within a week of meeting one another, the two of us decided to, um, decided to work together. And that's been about seven years now we've been working and um, investing through Maven. I love also how you also traveled as well to New Orleans and you learned about that ecosystem and then you almost came back to the Bay Area as well. And then, and then help uh, Maven. You didn't just stay in one place. Tell us, talk to us a little bit about Maven. I know it's a, a, a micro VC fund, but tell us what, what exactly you mean by micro VC and how you think about the early stage landscape and yeah, definitely. So we are kind of a true micro VC in my mind. That's a seed fund that's focused on very early stage, kind of a sub hundred million dollar fund where your fund size really enables you to continue to partner hands on with companies at that very early stage. So uh, we're investing out of our third fund now. Uh, it's a sixty five million dollar fund. We closed at the end of twenty nineteen. And we take a really concentrated approach. So we only make a few investments each year. This entire fund will have about 18 to 20 companies in it. So for us, that looks about, you know, ballpark about six investments each year. We typically are investing about a million dollars as our first check in those companies. We work very closely with them, which we're able to do because we are so concentrated. Uh, and we work with them to help raise their follow-on capital. And uh, we invest very heavily in those follow-on rounds. So we do reserve a lot of capital for follow-on. So that's kind of that, that micro VC, you know, definition and, and how we kind of practice in the micro VC realm. And then what's unique about kind of our investing approach at Maven is we're one of the only micro VCs that's purely focused on consumer software and big consumer trends. So that's the universe that we live in. And what that means is companies that have what we call a vision worth fighting for that we think can reach millions of customers every single day, it's going to make those customers' lives better. So when we're looking at evaluating a possible investment for Maven, you know, the first thing we're looking at is, is there kind of a massive consumer problem that's not already solved in some way that's good enough? Do they have an amazing team, ideally an amazing technical team that can build that product and kind of bring that vision to fruition? And if they do, there's a clear multi-billion dollar business opportunity. So kind of looking at a huge market opportunity, if they're able to identify that consumer problem, have that vision worth fighting for, their team can kind of build to achieve it. And then there's a massive billion dollar opportunity at the end. That's really helpful. I have a number of questions for you just based off of what you said. One of them is, you know, I had on Elizabeth Yin at um, Hustle Fund and she takes a, a, a different approach to, to micro VC. 
Um, it's a bit more smaller checks in a lot of companies. And so we talked a bit about that. I would love to just learn more about the approach of having a, a concentrated portfolio at the, and how you just think about por- portfolio construction um, and maybe returns as well. Just uh, just for those um, that, that maybe uh, that are listening that have their investor hat on and want to learn more about investing. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we, we think the world of Hustle Fund and with Elizabeth Yen, we actually um, led a seed deal, you know, kind of middle of last year and brought them in as a co-investor in that deal with us and, and love to work with them. And I think the reality is you have to just choose your model and like believe in your model and align with something that works for you that plays to your own strengths. And so, you know, their structure and their model is just very different from ours, but that's kind of the universe that Elizabeth comes from, right? And so that's her experiences, high volume deal processing, looking at a ton of different opportunities, you know, being able to take a bunch of different bets and then lean into the ones that are working, you know, it's really different from what, you know, we've just, what we really do at Maven, which is partnering very closely with very few companies and the, you know, you just have to kind of believe that you're working with, you know, a model that lends to your strengths and can kind of produce the returns that you're looking for. So, um, you know, where we sit, it's a really risky strategy because you just have fewer attempts and kind of fewer companies in your portfolio. But if you can kind of find great companies, partner with really talented CEOs, work with them really closely, um, you know, we try to move our loss ratio kind of away from, you know, industry norms. If we were looking at kind of a 70% loss ratio, like most seed, you know, most seed companies, 70% of companies fail, like we can't, that our portfolio can't tolerate that because it's so concentrated. So our seed to series A conversion ratio, ratio is more like 75% of our seed companies raise series A. Like we have to have that. Otherwise, the, the economics just don't make sense. You know, we don't have enough companies with enough, um, you know, opportunities to, to have a really meaningful exit um, for the economics to make sense for us and for our limited partners. And so I think you just have to align with, you know, we don't know how to work any other way with startups. You know, my partner, Jim, comes from an entrepreneurial background before being a VC. I come from kind of running an incubator, being, you know, hands-on. And so both of us, when we started working together, had this sense of um, the only way we know how to work with companies and the way we like to work with them is kind of this deep partnership uh, with with a few companies where you really feel like you can you can help them um, kind of unlock the opportunity to be really successful. And so I don't think a, a broader, wider investment strategy would work for us. It's just not our strength and not the type of investing we know. Thanks so much for sharing. And I also think of the world of Elizabeth Yin and, and, and Hustle Fund. I always just love hearing, as as Daniel Galati said on the show, there's no one way to skin a cat. There's no one way to invest. So I love, I love to just kind of hear different approaches because there is no one right, right way, right? And of course, Elizabeth did come from 500 startups as well, which that, that that's a similar approach um, as well, and sort of, and sort of um, spreading your risk across multiple different bets, as, as as you described. So that's that's really helpful. At Maven, do you typically lead lead rounds? It's really evolved for us over the years. You know, when we started, you know, when Maven was started in 2013, and then I was the first employee to join in 2014. So at the time that I was hired at Maven, there was no employee or structure for an employee. I had to set up payroll to be an employee to put myself on payroll. You know, and so it was kind of this very early days and that that fund was seven and a half million dollars and so it was just a a different you know our investing strategy has has stayed very true and has stayed very much the same looking for massive you know consumer um, opportunities with vision worth fighting for keeping a concentrated approach we did that back then but we didn't have the check size we didn't have the capital to lead Um, and so we sort of had to lead in action if we couldn't lead in check size so we still partnered really close with those companies we've helped them raise their you know follow on capital and we're very involved in that in that process we still retain very close relationships with um, you know a handful of companies from that fund Uh, but as we've grown over time you know with fund three it's really more at the structure and size that allows 
allows us to invest the model that we were always kind of shooting for from the beginning. Um, so with this fund, we've invested in 10 companies and we've led half those rounds. Um, so that's about the right, the right structure for us now. So um, that I think that'll be kind of where we'll continue to where we can lead, we can co-lead, we can participate. We tend to be less, um, you know, didactic about having to lead every round that we invest in, um, though every company will be a kind of a core, you know, a core relationship for us. Uh, about half the time, we're kind of the true lead in those rounds. No, that's that, that, that's helpful. And also, I, I love, uh, thank you for also painting a picture in terms of how a fund, how your $6.5 million fund um, how different it is now with, I think your third fund is 65 million. Is that right? Yeah, we were seven and a half, 18, and then 65. 65, cool. Wow, that's quite a jump from the 18 to 65. Um, so um, what were some of the learnings apart from maybe your fund structure might be a little bit different in terms of, um, as well as maybe your check size in early in, in early companies, since now you can write larger checks and actually, and, and, and lead deals. But maybe what were some of the early, um, was some of the, um, some of the other learnings that you've had from going and, and from, from fund one all the way now to, to fund three? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, so many things because, um, you know, we weren't an institutional fund at the time that we started. And so a lot of what we had to do was kind of prove out, you know, that we could find great companies, that we could invest and get allocation in them, uh, that we could work with them and help them to be successful. Um, and then ultimately we, that we'd be able to return capital. And so I think we've learned in each of those areas, you know, over the last, you know, seven years that, that I've been at, at Maven. And, um, you know, one thing that continues to ring true and something we continue to do is is you really have to back your winners um, and you've really got to um, have a sense of where do you see um, big opportunities in the portfolio when it maybe still seems a little bit crazy to everyone else and um, you know have the the conviction to invest heavily in those companies where you think that your real winners are going to be as I look back to um, you know, a couple of examples there. Our first um, kind of real meaningful exit at Maven was Cruise Automation, uh, which was one of the early companies in, in autonomous vehicles. And our very first check into Cruise was 100K into their very first, you know, into their very first seed round. And uh, less than two years later, they were acquired, you know, a really successful acquisition by General Motors. And between that first check and the acquisition from General Motors, we invested four times. We're the only investor that invested so many times. And at the time, you know, there were small checks in hindsight because it was a small fund, you know, but but the biggest check we wrote out of that fund was in a cruise follow-on round. And um, and we had over 10% of our fund invested in cruise at that time. And so um, a big piece of why that was successful is just the conviction to say, we think there's a real opportunity here and, and we're gonna kind of take the bold bet to invest there. Really similar story with our investment in Zoom. My partner, Jim, was a very early advisor in Zoom. He helped to name the company. So even prior to, um, yeah, and I think you'll you'll be hosting him on the um, you know Consumer VC soon, which, which I'm sure he'll share a lot more about the story. So I'll leave that to him to, to talk through that. But when Maven Fund One was first raised, um, we invested in Zoom. And then when Maven Fund 2 was raised, we also invested in opportunity in Zoom. So that's pretty rare. That's not something that we plan to do. Um, but we knew we had an opportunity opportunity to, to invest at what would have been a later stage round. But again, kind of the conviction of backing companies where you see a real opportunity. Um, and so I think that that kind of we've learned that lesson, we've um, applied that, we've been willing to take those kind of big bets when it when it seems like a very scary big check size given the fund size. And, and thankfully that's something that's that's paid that's paid off for us. So um, something we'll continue to do. That's great. No, that's really helpful. And I know that you've mentioned a few times how you know your philosophy, which I hear this from a from uh, from a bunch from you know probably from a lot of investors or if not every investor, how uh, how they think about pain points, how they think about even how they think about markets. Um, how do you analyze consumer pain points? Because consumer is is 
is a lot more tricky than enterprise, I think, because enterprise, you can talk to companies and see, okay, what are your pain points where, and you know, maybe they're, maybe you only need a few companies to really get going in, in the enterprise space. Right. Yeah. That's a great question. You know, and, and I think enterprise investing can sometimes be a little bit just more mechanical. You know, there's like some, you can find the pain points, you can find the needs and, and, and people that are great at that, I think have an amazing skill set. not something that, that I've focused on, but, but you see people that just know the ins and outs of like a, a number and what makes those companies, um, you know, really start to, to sing and, and there's a, a process to that, you know, there's like an equation where you're like, if this is working and this is working and this is the opportunity, we can apply that. And I think that that's, um, you know, an amazing skill set and consumers is, is different from that. But in honesty, I think in some ways it, it's a lot more fun, <laughs> you know, because you're spending time thinking of like, what are the, you know, what's happening in consumers' lives? What are the things that we're seeing kind of these early emerging, you know, data points of, um, of, of something that might be a big change in, in consumer behavior. And then part of it is just in the DNA of our fund. You know, we're, we're talking about this and every, you know, we do team meetings twice a week uh, where we go through our, our pipeline and kind of, and all of our companies and we're working on. And, and that's where we kind of tease out, like, what are the consumer trends that we're seeing? Where do we see opportunities? And, and once we kind of develop these different thesis areas, we start to look at, you know, gathering data. It might be, you know, something a big part of the reason why we have to have a broad and diverse team is because it's what are we seeing in consumers lives what are we seeing in our own lives our family and friends and you know, what are the data points that we're catching on there and then you start to kind of notice um you know little bubbles that will pop up of like oh i've been thinking about this trend and like oh here's this interesting article that's in usa today this like massive mainstream publication about it and i'm also seeing it being covered in you know the wall street journal and i'm also seeing this something that a friend posted about on facebook and you start to see these like trends will recur um you know kind of gathering all those data points to realize like oh we're we're kind of catching the beginning of something that could be um you know big consumer trend i think you know um one example I'll give is, you know, we're investors in a company called Care Fertility, and uh, we invested in that company almost four years ago in, in Tammy's initial seed rounds. And now there's like a fertility sector and there's like fertility companies and investors are looking, you know, do you have a fertility play? But at the time, you know, um, uh, I was seeing, you know, I was at the time, um, you know, almost 10 years out of business school. Um, getting ready to start a family of my own and seeing in, you know, all around me this um, just movement towards, you know, families wanting to take their fertility in their own hands, just a boom of egg freezing, for instance, you know, the egg freezing industry has just um, had massive growth um, and starting to see that that happening anecdotally. And then you see, um, you know, Tammy pitch on stage at Y Combinator and this kind of light bulb goes off of like, okay, now's the moment. And at the time people were like, really? Like, fertility, is that a thing? you know, what's that investment going to look like, um, you know, but that's a great example of kind of identifying this early trend. And then you start to do the research and, and realize that the data is, 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 you know, backing that up. And I think we've seen that now, you know, play out as they've continued to kind of be successful in kind of really expanding their customer base and also, you know, raising, um, you know, very successful fall on capital, you know, over the, the past several years, you know, going on with the series A and series B and, and whatnot. No, totally. And I, and I really appreciate you. I, I really appreciate that example with uh, fertility and also and, and egg freezing. And what's also interesting about that, I'd imagine is when you're looking at the trends, you maybe might look as well as w w women in the workforce or in the workspace that actually want to um, start families later um, in their careers, right? And so that could also transition to, you know, egg freezing. And, 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 and Absolutely. Then. And that was, you know, even before, you know, care for us wasn't really even about a fertility investment. It was about this trend of seeing the financial and professional independence of women was changing, um, you know, and, and we'd been talking about that and, and seeing data, you know, uh, in a book came out in, um, you know, several years ago called All the Single Ladies that was talking about um, how for the first time 
in history, we had more single women than married women in the US. Um, and you're seeing that that kind of that start to tip. And so now, as we look at kind of what are new emerging consumer trends, where are areas that we're looking for investments now, you know, a big category where I spend a lot of time is in family tech and what we call kind of the future of families, because you look at all of this amazing technology that's made our lives like so efficient and productive at work, right? Like here we are just on this like Zoom call, you know, recording something, um, you know, completely remotely, uh, you know, the the growth of, um, you know, superhuman and, and Notion and, and um, all of the tools that are being built on top of the Zoom platform. And then you look at our homes and like what technology has helped as our home lives have gotten more complicated than ever before. We live in this age of like relentless parenting. We have more, you know, dual income, dual working couples than we've ever had before, um, you know, and, and families are, are drowning in the logistics of managing their homes and, you know, in their children's lives. And so kind of where's the technology for that? Like, what can the software industry do there? And so, um, you know, we've been looking a lot at, at that kind of broad, you know, broad consumer um, trend, you know, pre-COVID, but, but really, I think, um, you know, COVID has really shined, you know, has really shined a light on, um, you know, on what's happening and, and kind of what works and, and really what doesn't work about kind of the American family structure and the support that we have for families. No, that's, that's really helpful. How do you think about maybe the balancing act of being thematic, but also having the entrepreneur maybe bring you an insight. Yeah, no, I, I totally see what you're saying because I think you could be too pragmatic and, and so focused on a thesis that you kind of miss the the forest for the trees. And so, you know, an area where we're really active is, is things that are built on top of the Zoom platform, right? As early investors in Zoom, we started looking last March. So like one week into the COVID lockdown in, you know, in the, uh, you know, in the Bay Area, we're thinking, you know, this is going to be something that's going to persist. And now, now is the time that new billion dollar companies can be built on top of Zoom. And so I would say that's actually a super broad thesis, right? So within kind of built on Zoom, you know, we've we've really taken the lead from entrepreneurs that have come to us to say, you know, now that the world has changed, now that we've gone onto this virtual kind of video first realm, here are the opportunities there. So we've invested in companies that are kind of, um, you know, core, you know, communication and collaboration. We've invested in companies that are telemedicine and telehealth and, you know, mental health companies. Um, so it's, those couldn't be more different, right? And so they're still kind of under this universe of, of built on Zoom and our lives being video first and virtual first, but the the actual products themselves are, are really different. I love to know what are some qualities you like to see in founders and really how you evaluate companies. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, that's the first filter. Do we see this kind of massive consumer pain point? So I think we've, we've covered that, um, you know, and then and then the second is as we look at that founding team, um, one of the things we really look for is is persistence and drive and this idea of like what I would call kind of like a brick wall founder. Do I think that this person is going to just drive through a brick wall in order to make that their vision come to reality? And, and we can help and support and, and you know, put resources in front of them. Um, but at the end of the day, we're not founders and we're not building their company and they take the risk and they put, um, you know, their, their energy and effort into building their team and, and building out their companies. And so we do the best we can to support them, but it's the founder that that's really driving it. And so, um, you know, when we work with a founder that we just feel like has this incredible de determination, they have to see this come to the world. Um, that for me is, is something that's a really, really compelling characteristic. Um, and then that coupled with, if it's a, a software company, which most of our companies are, do we see that they actually have the product and technical capabilities to build something that's going to to solve that problem, um, right? If we can kind of get that combo of this like amazing, visionary, passionate, driven um, team that also has the ability to, to build and scale a product, um, that's kind of that magical combination we look for. When COVID hit in March, you were immediately looking at taking a lot more seriously the Zoom ecosystem and what and, and, and who's building on top of Zoom. I love to kind of 
does this make you want to does does this accelerate maybe how many investments you make a year? Yeah, you know, for the for the folks that are listening that's kind of on like like the investor junkies, like people that are like either building an investment portfolio or in VC or want to get into VC, like uh I think that the insight I've seen for the last year is I have never seen things move so quickly and seen such a deluge of amazing opportunities as we've seen in the last, you know, maybe nine, nine months, right? Um, I think there was this feeling in March last year that like, what's going to happen is VC get a grind to a halt, and it couldn't be more the opposite. Um, you know, I think that that structurally, there's a couple of reasons, you know, the first is just kind of like logistically, you know, used to be even getting from Palo Alto to San Francisco, and you've got two meetings a day, you could do one in San Francisco, one in Palo Alto, and then you're done, right? That's like all that you that you could account for with traffic. And because people are traveling, because you're meeting in person, there's sort of this norm that meetings were 45 to 60 minutes. And so now we live in a universe where there's no kind of logistics and travel. And I think that's driven people to doing a lot more 30 minute intro meetings. And so just the volume of companies you're able to look at with this sort of new norm is so much higher and so because of that I think it's just natural that there are a lot more great opportunities as well and so you couple that with the the process of being able to push a deal through a partnership is so much faster right you, you don't have people you know oh my partner's at conference this week oh my partner's on vacation this week like that that norm is is has really fractured as well and so just the pace you can move something through you know you can meet a company today and then have them in front of your entire you know investment team the next day um, and that used to be harder to do and so I think that combination of, of kind of the change of, of investors behavior has really propelled the funding pace, you know, really, um, really rapidly. I know it's done it for Maven and I hear from other VCs and investors that it, that it's really done it, you know, across the board. So yeah, we had our most active investment year ever last year, which is crazy to look at, you know, personally, because I've spent, you know, six months with a two-year-old and zero childcare in the middle of the pandemic. And then I had a baby and spent three months, you know, on maternity leave. And so I was sort of like at half or less capacity and I met more companies. And so there's, it just kind of shows the, the ability of if you kind of lean into this kind of new behavior paradigm, we sort of said, we're not going to be scared to, to make investments that we haven't met the founder in person. And I think a lot of VCs have been that way. So it's definitely changed the, the pace and style of investing in our industry. So are you are you comfortable meeting and, and investing in companies that, or founders that you haven't met in person? And Yeah, now, I mean, I think our last seven investments, we've never met the founders in person and our team. We, you know, we hired a, an amazing associate, his name is Jay Drain. And, um, and, and he's been a phenomenal addition to, to our team and he's based in New York and no one, none of us have ever met him. We fully interviewed and hired him, um, you know, remotely. So I think maybe because we were, you know, had comfort with Zoom from the early days, we were like a little more ready to make the shift. Uh, but, but at the same time, um, yeah, we've definitely gone to a, a virtual first world. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's great. Um, Cause I'm, I'm always just curious. I can understand, for example, if for funds that are really spreading their risk and putting maybe a lot of, um, um, making it where, where maybe you're making small bets in a lot of companies that they're more comfortable with remote because they're already meeting so many, so many companies investing. But it's also interesting um, at Maven, since you are a much more concentrated portfolio, that you are okay with writing larger checks when you actually haven't met the founder in person. That's pretty interesting. What are some other trends? I know we spoke about um, we spoke about Zoom. We spoke about Zoom Marketplace. I know we spoke about uh, companies that are serving families. I'd love to explore as well. I think another one of your topics that we've dived in a little bit on is telehealth. What are some opportunities in telehealth that you're right now um, fascinated by? Yep. You know, the interesting thing about telehealth is it had kind of been this great promise that telemedicine was going to be coming for so many years. And I think that the industry just had, you know, a decade of progress 
in the six months of, you know, in the middle of, in the middle of COVID. And um, now we're seeing consumers finally get what I think consumers wanted all along, which is immediate easy access to the healthcare system. And so uh, I think because there was this reticence to go into any healthcare facility, unless it was totally, absolutely necessary, kind of coupled with this comfort of doing more things on video, I think it made it made it possible to to have both the providers and their patients kind of adopt it, you know, telemedicine. And so, um, you know, the first place that we look to invest, as I mentioned, um, you know, briefly is, is in mental health, right? Because it's this concept of, you know, pr particularly therapy, which usually tends to be, you know, a weekly or every other week relationship if you're going through, um, you know, kind of a core therapy, what a, you know, what a psychologist or a psychiatrist would want to see their patient do is kind of these weekly or, or every other week appointments. And that was just hard to fit into people's schedules and lives before. Um, and now that it's gone fully remote, it's just, it's just possible to do that again. So, um, you know, have made two investments in, in virtual mental health, as I, as I mentioned. And then the other place where I've seen a lot of adoption, I think, um, you know, women have always been greater consumers of the healthcare system, right? Um, they tend to be um, seeking and getting more care for themselves. I think a lot of that is driven by the fact that women are the ones that, that have you know the childbearing years and go through the process of of you know being pregnant and having their babies, which obviously lends to a lot more engagement with the healthcare system. And then they also become the healthcare decision makers for their families. And so I think we've seen this massive adoption of of women, um, you know, uh, sort of thriving, uh, you know, in the idea of being able to have you know virtual um, healthcare. One of our investments is a company called Genev, which is the leader in uh, menopause care. And so you look at the kind of perimenopausal, um, you know, woman who in her like late 40s and and 50s are the menopausal woman in that kind of age, and you realize that for the most part, many of those women are um, you know working full time now at home, have either you know young kids or or teenage kids that are doing remote learning, and you know, or and um, aging parents that they have to support. And so they're this kind of fulcrum that's like carrying the, the heavy load of, 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 of COVID and they need support to really help themselves navigate this massive hormonal change that's happening in, the, in their lives. And so we saw a ton of interest from, um, from consumers of, um, kind of connecting with that Genev telemedicine platform to help them navigate that phase of life that goes on for, um, you know, can be a decade or more for many people. And so I think there's just been a, a big draw from consumers and also just more acceptance of, of providers that kind of now is the moment for, for telemedicine. And, and we were able to, to move in and kind of act again, kind of telemedicine being the broad trend, but each of those investments being about kind of what's the consumer pain point that we're finding. No, I appreciate that. And, and, and thanks so much for, for breaking it down into a few different categories or, or, or subcategories of, of telehealth, because um, I hear telehealth a lot. We don't cover it as much on the show. So it's always great hearing this. I've, I've, another time we, we talked a little bit about it was um, Daniel Galati, who invested in K-Health. So we touched on it a little bit with, with his investment there but this is this is terrific just to explore uh, new areas uh, that's that's terrific what's what's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital valuations <laughs> no I mean you know I mean in all seriousness we definitely I think there was this belief that there was going to be like the great valuation correction of 2020 which is like a total farce and definitely never, never happened, um, you know, but, but I think, you know, again, I think a big piece of that is, is the deal volume has increased and we're all seeing so many great opportunities that, you know, there just hasn't been as much of a switch around, around valuation. Um, you know, I think one of the things that is changing about venture capital that I really appreciate is, um, you know, first of all, like obviously seeing it become a more, you know, accessible, um, 
path for a variety of people. You look at the the broad ranging, you know, diversity, you know, efforts that have been happening. And um, I'm glad to see that evolution happening in our industry. And I think um, it really is gaining momentum. And it's something that that we're going to see, um, you know, real opportunities for a, a wide range of, of people and perspectives that are able to come to the industry. And a big piece of that is, is I think, you know, venture is, is um, you know, I recognize it's a really privileged job. I mean, you get to, um, work at the forefront of technology. You're meeting so many amazing, interesting, you know, entrepreneurs. You have the ability to put capital behind visions that you believe in. Um, you know, it's in many ways a very autonomous and self-directed job. And so you have, um, you know, a lot of independence and autonomy to, to, to pursue passions and interest areas. So there's so many reasons why it's a really, it's a really privileged job. And I think with maybe the proliferation of, of you know, blogging and then, subs, you know, and then now Substacks and, and tweeting and now Clubhouse and um, all of these other areas, people are starting to now understand kind of like, what is it like to have a career in, in venture capital? Like, what does it take to be successful? How can you access those types of careers? How do the economics work within a venture fund? And, and kind of what are the mechanics of kind of the, the career of venture capital and kind of the practice of the, you know, the financial economics of venture capital, I think people are starting to now um, just share more and understand more, which helps people kind of realize like, what is it, you know, at the end of the day, I, I love the work that I do with entrepreneurs, but I'm a financial manager. Like at the end of the day, my job is I'm entrusted by many LPs to return you know, much more money than the money they gave me. And that's my job. And so I think sometimes you can lose sight of you know, people wanting to get into VC and kind of lose sight of the idea of really you've got to get into this because you want to create financial returns for your limited partners and, and kind of that's your that's your job. Um, and so I think the more that now is becoming kind of more common public knowledge about kind of the inner workings of like what's a you know what's what is an LP? How does that work? What are they what are they expecting and kind of what do those returns look like? Kind of these S1 teardowns that you see for um, you know when companies go public. I, I just appreciate that that's becoming um, you know this idea of learning in public and kind of putting you know out there the the mechanics of our industry and how it, how it works. Um, that's a change in evolution that I've been really, you know, grateful to see over the last seven years. No, I love that, you know, democratizing information, making information a lot more accessible. So, so folks can learn a lot more about VC. Um, and as well, you know, with the pandemic as well, um, uh, you know, being able to also maybe rethink um, what companies are venture backable. You don't need to be in, you know, the Silicon Valley in the New Yorks of the world. You can actually be in, in different parts of the country. Um, th thinking about U.S. specifically here, because um, I know that your focus is the U.S. But um, but yeah, so that 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 that's that's really cool. That's really cool, and I and I completely agree. Um, what is what what's one book that inspired you personally, and one book that inspired you professionally? I'm probably gonna say like the book. Does does every single person you have on the show come and say The Alchemist? Is that like the number one book that people say personally? No, really? No, no, uh, no. So yeah, yeah. Do you want me to tell you what the number one book yes. is? Shoe dog. Oh my gosh, that was my number two book. <laughs> that number like, two book. So so shoe dog. Shoe dog is like what we've done like over a hundred episodes. I think shoe dog is is like ten. Ten of like the hundred is like so that's hilarious. Ten like percent. It's crazy. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah I, I thought um, and maybe so maybe shoe dog is kind of like the business cliche. Uh, for sure, it was like a really you know amazing story. You know the um, the alchemist for me is a book that you know over. Gosh, you know, ten, like 10 years or more, like a book that I keep coming back to. And um, a founder, one of the very first founders that I that I worked with, um, a company that was based in New Orleans that started, you know, kind of right in the wake of Hurricane Katrina and really part of what kind of propelled me to um, to spend several years working in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. The founder of that company had recommended this book, The Alchemist. And, and the first time I read that, um, you know, I love the idea and kind of the spirit behind the book is this idea that um, when you really, really want something, like the world conspires in helping you to achieve it. 
and that for me, I think has always been a really powerful mission personally. And also I think is, is a really great, um, you know, for founders and for, for tech and for, and for, you know, venture capitalists, because I think you have to believe so strongly in what you want and like what you want think the world is going to be, what you envision is going to happen in the world, why the world needs the, you know, the product or the company that you're bringing out there. And if you kind of pursue that mission, that's really, you know, authentic and important to you, um, you know, you really can believe that like the resources and kind of like luck can happen to you. And, and I love this idea of if you really, really want something, and if you feel, you know, very passionate and, and authentically aligned with it, like can the world conspire in helping you to achieve that? I think it's pretty powerful. I love that. I think that's, that's, that's terrific. And um, I'm excited to add you to y- your name to the alchemist as, as, as one of the ones uh, that's recommended. Alchemist is certainly up there. Um, shoe dog, shoe dog still number one, but um, maybe we can, maybe, we, maybe we can convince more investors to, uh, 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 to pull it up in the ranks. Um, is there another book that, it, that, that, that inspired you? I, it, it seems like that inspired you both personally and professionally, to be honest. Um, so we can, so happy to put uh, um, alchemist and then, and then I'll also list you for shoe dog too. Um, uh, since that was your number two. It's, and you know, and I mean, what I read, what I read now, um, you know, like what I've been reading this year, what I, what I read a lot now, I think the, the interesting thing about being in, in consumer and right, you talk about how do we find these consumer trends is a lot of what I read is, um, you know, uh, memoirs or, um, you know, current fiction or things like that. Like, how are people thinking about the world? What are people thinking about that that could be, um, you know, sort of um, current? So a book I just read recently that I thought was um, was really interesting is a book called Made, M-A-I-D. and uh, I just finished it a couple weeks ago, and it's more about, um, you know, it's a life of a of a single mom who is, you know, trying to help her family thrive through being a housekeeper, and her story of um, kind of this connection of, um, you know, her drive to create life for her family, um, kind of coupled with poverty in the American system that we have, um, you know, that doesn't, you know, really support, um, you know, families and kind of that that poverty, and so um, that was like just I don't know, like an amazing connection that you kind of see with um, how how is how is the world living like how are people living how are consumers like living and thriving in that in that universe so um uh that was one book and then um some of the more like you know kind of crazy out there like you got to read like the martian and artemis and you know and more you know some stuff like that that's like how are people thinking about like about space and and um you know and and you know setting up societies from the beginning so um to some degree i think a lot of the the more either fiction or or nonfiction stuff that i read is really about the kind of consumer experience and if you could kind of restart and kind of dream about what would be um you know the the experience of, of many different people of all walks of life that that also informs you know the work that we do at maven no, I love that. I love that. I really appreciate you mentioning me. We haven't had anyone on the show mention that book, so I'm excited to uh, uh, to add that to the list. What is the best piece of advice that you've received? I mean, the first piece of advice, honestly, that, that comes to mind is, and it's and it's so simple, but it's so true, is that you know, our um, is is just to do your best, you know, and and I think like no matter kind of what you know, there's so many different career things or or you know, educational things or you know, a lot of different angles that that we could dive into. That I'm sure there's some other kind of broader prophetic advice, but um, you know, but but my um, I my dad, my both my parents, really my dad in particular, has always you know raised us and has always said that that kind of ringing mantra in your mind of just you know, just do your best is something that was always expected of us and, and kind of encouraged. And I think at the end of the day, that's all that that's all that we really can do. And so if I were to think about what's kind of the advice that really resonates the most, um, that kind of applies no matter what you're doing, it's just that concept of, um, you know, simple, but true and uh, applies to everyone is, is to just do your best. I love that. My final question for you is, 
what's one piece of advice that you have for founders? I guess apart from doing your best. <laughs> I mean, I think do your, do your best is also true for founders. Um, I think you know what the the best advice that I have for founders is is um, you know you've got to define and follow your vision worth fighting for. You know and and pursue a company that you're really passionate about, that you think needs to exist in the world, that you think can help and serve tens of millions or more or more people. Um, you pursue that, you know, align yourself with your your passion and your vision and and spend all of this time and energy and money, uh, you know, working towards something that you could be really proud of. Um, and I think that that will lead to, you know, a fulfilled life in really hard times that which there are many, many of in every single startup. Um, and ultimately, I think leads to massive business opportunities as well. Um, you know, you've got to kind of be able to articulate that, that great meaningful vision and apply yourself to, um, you know, to recruit others, be that employees or investors or customers to kind of join you. Um, so the more you can kind of have that great meaningful vision and, and articulate it, the, the better successful you'll be at helping to, to bring on those others on board. Totally. I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. Well, Sarah, this has been simply terrific. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed it. You've taken me on a winding path through, you know, from the, you know, New Orleans early days of, of working with startups and, and uh, you know, reading many books over the years around, uh, you know, and even bringing in my, you know, parents' advice and, and now looking at what do we think are the, the massive opportunities for the future that really impact, you know, consumers' lives and um, will continue to thrive in this really, you know, unusual but now kind of new world that's in front of us of, um, you know, with so many massive changes in consumer behavior. So it's been a really fun, great conversation. And there you have it. It was terrific chatting with Sarah. You can catch her on Twitter at Sarah underscore Desh, D-E-S-H. You're also welcome to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks.